Hi, welcome back to Eight Words or Less. If this is your first time listening, this is the podcast series that distills leadership and management books into, surprise, surprise, eight words or less. Some of you know me already. I am Sammy and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm James. I'm your other host. So this week, we're going to be looking at the book Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. So Sammy, what made you choose this book? Was it recommended to you? Was it something you'd come come across before? Well, one of the reasons we started this podcast was to get through uh, to get through all the leadership and management books that you and I had been acquiring. So I went through into my cupboard and I saw this book. It really stood out to me because I have a background in psychology. And yeah, the, the six principles of influence that Cialdini speaks about. I just wanted to know more. For me, it was really exciting to read it again. I thought it was such an excellent book. It's one of those rare leadership and management books, which is both incredibly informative, really engaging, but also really practical. Uh, you know, you could. I, I spent my whole time reading this book, uh, Sammy, going, oh, so that's what's happened. That's why I ended <laughs> up buying that. Um, so it was really good. And I was caught right at the start where I think, and I'm quoting it, he describes himself as a patsy, which I admit is, is such an American word. I had to look up to check what it meant. Um, but uh, I think it I think it, uh, it really grabbed me because I'm definitely someone who's been taken for a ride more times than I can admit. Uh, and it was really interesting as going through this book. The, the those oh wow moments. Yeah, well, that makes two of us. And I, I think one of the things I took away from this book is it's okay that people are using the psychology of persuasion to influence us, but there is kind of an ethical way to do it. And there's a less ethical way, if you like. What I found so interesting was the way this book was written. Obviously, Robert Cialdini is this incredible academic, you know, professor of psychology at Arizona State, Stanford University, the University of Santa Cruz, and his list of degrees and, and qualifications goes on and on. But in his research for this book, he actually went undercover and worked at estate agents, uh, uh, used car sales uh, shops at uh, um, charities for, for getting donations to, and he did that for three years to try and understand what works in practice. And for me, that really came through well in the book because on each of the six rules of influence that he talks about, they are supported both by this depth of science that he talks about, but also really interesting anecdotes that pulls it to life. Um, and I think that balance makes it such a, such a good book to read as well. So essentially in this book, uh, Cialdini argues that there are thousands and thousands of different tactics that people can employ to effectively produce the answer yes, to influence those people around them. But he argues that these can be grouped into six categories, uh, which are covered off in the book. And these are reciprocation, consistency, social proof, authority, liking, and scarcity. And one of the things that he does emphasize right from the start is that we live in this incredibly complicated environment. And for us to even be able to exist, we need to, to, to work through shortcuts. We can't be expected to recognize and analyze everything that happens in every encounter all the time. We don't have the energy or capacity for it. So we have to rely on rules and of thumb and shortcuts to respond almost mindlessly to certain triggers. And what Cialdini says is that these triggers are usually incredibly effective, 
but they are also the shortcuts that can be manipulated to influence people. Yeah, and in this hyper-connected digital world that we live in, it's almost as if human thought is becoming negligible. And so just being able to help us to decipher this blizzard of information uh, is going to be so useful. Yeah, and uh, not just the, the digital element of it. Um, Cialdini also says that in when uncertainty increases, we become more susceptible to some of these rules of influence. And, you know, it, perhaps you just look at, uh, we've mentioned this a few times in our podcast, but you look at how quickly toilet paper disappeared as soon as people uh, mm. started seeing it become scarce. Uh, and so there's that scarcity principle coming in. And the one that really I found amazing was when he talked about the social proof. Um, and, you know, especially in times of uncertainty, you look to those people around you uh, and respond accordingly. And I've always been quite susceptible to this, I think, uh, Sammy. I've always been very easy to um, fall for peer pressure. And I found early in this pandemic, even when I knew I shouldn't be shaking hands, I would still respond to someone who offered to shake my hand and I would actually shake because I felt otherwise I'd be breaking some form of social contract or, or others. So I think it's, it's a really interesting time to be looking at this um, book and, uh, and really looking forward to hearing your central message, Sammy. Well, it was a challenge because like you, James, this is one of the best leadership books I have ever read. And taking these six principles of reciprocity, consistency, social proof, liking, authority, and scarcity. There is so much gold in this book. But I came up with a seven-word central message. And my central message is, use principles of persuasion to your advantage. So my first petal is about reducing uncertainty, which you've already mentioned, James. In general, when we're unsure of ourselves, when the situation is unclear or ambiguous, and personally, I think the world is volatile, ambiguous, complex. So when we are unclear, we look to others to inform what we should do. Uh, this is called pluralistic ignorance. Everyone else looking to see what other people are doing. And Cialdini says this particularly happens when we find ourselves unsure or uncertain. So we seem to assume that if a lot of people are doing the same thing, they must know something that we don't. And so especially when we're uncertain, we're willing to place an enormous amount of trust in the collective knowledge of the crowd. So Cialdini cites a classic example of what's called bystander inaction in the Genovese murder in New York. I first heard about this a couple of years ago. I was watching a documentary on Netflix called The Witness, which I also highly recommend. And in 1964, 38 neighbours, they watched, and you could say they were good people, they witnessed, they watched the prolonged attack and then subsequent murder of a lady called Catherine Genovese. And Cialdini goes into the psychology of influence and asks, why is it that 38, inverted commas, good people, why is it that nobody helped her? He says it's because there were so many observers, there were so many potential helpers around, that what happened was personal responsibility, individual action was reduced. Perhaps somebody else will help, or perhaps someone else has already called for help, 
um, might, might have been going through people's minds. And so what's beginning to emerge is this this idea of safety in numbers that we've had, that we've been taught it might be completely wrong. Um, so yeah, that was the that was the first example. I, such a powerful example. I actually I think it's also covered off in one of Malcolm Gladwell's books as well because I think he talks about it and it's something that uh, is very illuminating about the way we all behave. I actually <laughs> remember. And though this was more years ago than I care to confess, but when I was in my first or second year at university, I remember coming out of classes and someone sprinting towards me carrying a backpack. And I remember being there and looking at this and thinking something's not quite right here and wondering if I should get involved, should stop the person, which would have been relatively easy or not. But there was just... There was enough uncertainty there, and I didn't see anyone else around me acting any differently. And so I just let this person run past me without saying anything or doing anything to stop him. And 30 seconds later, this, this woman came uh, out, of the, um, out of the same class screaming, he's, he's stolen my bag. And I felt dreadful about it. I, mm-hmm. I saw the way she looked at me because she had seen this person run straight past me. And Again, however many years later, I still remember it really clearly and I still feel bad about it. But I think, it, you know, on a much smaller scale, it is that similar sort of that the, there wasn't quite enough certainty there. I couldn't see anyone else. Was I going to get involved in something that would make me look stupid? Uh, and so I, there was just this inaction. Uh, although, you know, as you say, I would like to think of myself as an inverted commas good person. I, I did not. Yeah. Yeah, it happened to me the other week. I was in Hong Kong and I was queuing to get into the airport terminal and I started to see smoke emanating from an ashtray. And I noticed nobody was doing anything. And thankfully, because I knew about these principles, I realized in that moment, literally the self-talk, the words in my head was, I understand what is happening to me. And then I moved to action. And I was the person out of maybe 10 or 20 who took my water bottle and I put out what was turning into a fire. Interestingly, Cialdini does talk about smoke. He said when they set up experiments where smoke was seeping through underneath a door, when people were alone, 75% took action. But when there were three people in the room, only 38% of the people took action. Um, They also did a study with a New York college student who was acting, appearing to have an epileptic seizure. He only got help 31% of the time when there were five bystanders present. When there was only one bystander present, 85% of the time he got help. And what is fascinating when you watch some of the YouTube recordings of these experiments People who had walked past the actor having the epileptic seizure, they actually ran back and they came to help when they saw the first person take action. I think this is interesting because it applies in our day-to-day lives in, in less dramatic ways as well. If we are so influenced by the reactions and the implications of people around us, the social effect we are sometimes less likely to speak out. If you're listening to a presentation and you can see something's clearly wrong, but no one else is speaking, you're inevitably thinking, well, maybe it's me that's seeing this wrong. And if I speak out, am I going to be embarrassed? 
You know, if you see a decision that you think is wrong, but no one else is saying that decision doesn't seem right, it becomes harder because we like to to look poised and sophisticated and Mm -hmm. don't like to look stupid. It becomes harder for us to sometimes speak out. And I think that's why large organizations often are and, and always should be very conscious about creating a culture that encourages them. Yeah, well, belonging is the most fundamental human need. So as we've said on previous podcasts, it's belonging to what? And so in the culture change work that I do, we invite leaders to, are your people standing behind of the rules or are they standing in front of them? Because recognizing there is a blind spot around speaking up because it involves somebody stepping out from the crowd. You know, this stuff can change your life, James. If we need help, let's say somebody is having a personal emergency, then now we know that using these principles of persuasion to your advantage, what will become key is to reduce or remove uncertainty. So isolate one individual, stare at them. Cialdini says, speak and point to that person and nobody else and say, you, sir or ma'am in the blue jacket, I need your help now. And then tell them what help you need. Call an ambulance. He or she now understands that that person, nobody else is responsible for providing the first aid and how to provide it. Removing uncertainty is going to help in so many facets of our leadership. And that's why, James, use principles of persuasion to your advantage. The second petal is about hacks. So this is the patsy bit. Uh, Suppose you walk into a shop, James, and you want to buy a three-piece suit, but you also want a sweater or a jumper. Which one of those items should a salesperson start with in order to make the most money out of you? Well, I'm cheating a little bit because obviously I I read the book, but it was interesting, Sammy, because I would have thought, sell me the cheaper thing first because I'm then more likely to stay and maybe buy the next one. But um, it was really interesting uh, that I was completely wrong. And uh, Cialdini says you, you start with the most expensive item. And then you're more willing, or the customer is then more willing to buy the um, the cheaper item. And and Safi, again, the, this book has these wonderful, you know, oh wow moments in it. And it wasn't that long ago that I went to buy a couple of suits, and I ended up leaving the shop not just with a couple of suits, but with some cufflinks, some socks, and a couple of ties that I didn't really want, <laughs> uh, and they were more expensive than I would have otherwise paid for them. But because I spent a few hundred dollars on these suits, I just was less sensitive to the price of these other items. Yeah, because if you've spent $495 on a suit, I guess $95 for a sweater or $50 for a cufflink, it calls the the contrast principle. Um, It doesn't seem as much money. And I know this to be true because when I bought a car, uh, I called my dad afterwards and he asked me, how much was it? And I found myself answering, what, before or after the add-ons? <laughs> yeah, because so, after I'd spent money on the car, tinted windows and those extra add-ons didn't seem like a lot of money. So, yeah, this is where we need to be aware of some of the hacks of these principles of and, persuasion. 
And I, I loved all of these hacks, Sammy, especially because I'm, I'm such a sucker for them. And so hopefully I'll be better prepared next time. But it, it very, very similar, but linked to the reciprocation principle that actually this works in what he calls the rejection then retreat technique, similar to, to the concept of anchoring, where someone in a negotiation will start with a higher price, even if they know that it's not worth it. So when you were buying your car, they might have started at a price which was 20% more than, than it was actually worth. And by coming lower, they are offering this concession. It's almost a reciprocation. This retreat is saying, well, I'm giving you something. I am I am reducing my price. So you need to reciprocate with a bit more interest. Um, and that contrast principle then comes in as well, because you're contrasting automatically that lower price with the higher one that was offered at the start. Yeah. And these are the fundamentals of negotiation that we teach leaders about. And be aware also if some other things start to creep in. So NLP or neuro-linguistic programming would suggest it's part of brain science and it would suggest that the person trying to sell you something, they might start mirroring your body language uh, to build rapport with you. They might offer you a compliment, that likability principle that we spoke about. They might say something like, oh, where are you from? Oh, my sister's husband is from there in order to build that connection. So it's fascinating. All these things are coming to play whilst negotiating. I have been uh, watching some of my favourite TV shows. So I love the BBC Radio 4 News Quiz on the radio, and I love the Graham Norton show, A Comedy in the UK. And since COVID-19 and social distancing, you've noticed that the comedians, they don't have the laughter anymore in the audience. I didn't realize how important canned laughter was for these shows. I've become so accustomed of taking the humorous reaction of others as evidence of what deserves my laughter that I, James, I don't know how to respond anymore to some of my favorite <laughs> shows. And I was surprised to see it's actually made in the last week for national newspapers that the British public have asked for canned laughter <laughs> to come back to the Graham Norton TV show just so that we know when to laugh along. And so what we're beginning to see is in every facet of our life, from comedy shows to when we go shopping, or these principles are at play. And that's why use principles of persuasion to your advantage. final petal is about increasing commitment. So the research tells us that once we make a choice or we take a stand, we start to encounter personal and interpersonal pressures to behave consistently with that commitment. So Cialdini says that these pressures cause us to respond in ways that justify an earlier decision. He talks about a study done by a pair of Canadian psychologists, and they uncovered something fascinating about people at a racetrack. Just after those people place a bet, they become much more confident of their horse's chance of winning than they were immediately before placing the bet. So, of course, nothing has changed about the horse's chances. It's the same horse, same track, same field. But in the minds of the bettors, its prospects have improved significantly when the ticket is purchased. And so this idea of increasing commitment, again, is all pervasive. I'm now beginning to wonder, is that why some dental surgeries I go to, they get me to write down the appointment details for myself? Because if I make a link to Cialdini's work, it would suggest that 
no-shows and cancellations are reduced when I take pen to paper or when I verbalize or I commit to something. And those, as he says, personal and interpersonal pressures start to come into play. Yeah, I, I also thought his example, Sammy, especially if any of our listeners are parents, around Christmas and, and what the sellers of, of popular toys do in terms of putting adverts out for really popular toys that they then intentionally understock in the run-up to Christmas because the parent will commit to their child that uh, we'll give you this toy for Christmas. Um, they'll go out and it's out of stock in any of the stores or perhaps mm. on Amazon these days, have to buy something else. And then after Christmas, magically, this toy will come back into, uh, into the stores. And so it comes back on the advert. And because they've already made this commitment to their child, they uh, go back out and, and buy the second toy. So there's you doing your Christmas shopping in February. <laughs> Luckily, my son's only two years old, so I, I've got a while before I have to uh, worry about this, but I'll be prepped for the future. Good stuff. Well, once we realize the power of consistency is formidable in directing human action, the question becomes for leaders, how do you get people to a space where they're going to make a commitment? So that is to take a stand and to go on record. And this is something we embed, as you know, James, into all of our facilitation work. When we're delivering any kind of a debrief, we always get to the now what part, which is now what will you do? And often we hear leaders reply, well, what we need to do, or the company needs to, or my manager needs to, or the regional group needs to. And we hold space for that and we acknowledge it. Yeah, that's great. But what's something that you specifically will do? What will that look like? And when will you do it by? Because we now know that somebody either writing it down or sharing with somebody at a table or the person next to them or into the main room, once that that has been mentioned in public, people are more likely then to observe and to follow through on that behavior. So, James, I guess before we come back to the central message from this incredible book, which I highly recommend to, to listeners to read, what is something that you're going to do specifically uh, to bring these principles of persuasion to your advantage? There's two things I'm going to do. One, which might break your rules, not completely specific, but it was really interesting to me how Cialdini said, one of the ways you can protect yourself against the less ethical elements of this is just to listen to your stomach and trust it a little bit more. Listen to your gut. Because so often when you are going through one of these engagements where you realize that perhaps this type of influence is being used on you, in your gut, you know it, but you don't often always listen to it. You don't often pause and say, this is wrong. I know something's not right here. So I'm definitely going to make a more conscious effort. But in terms of commitment, I think the thing I'll say is I've been trying to learn Spanish for about 10 years now. And I have the, the typical Englishman's terrible grasp of any language. I, I sort of think that if I speak loudly enough and gesticulate wildly enough, they'll, they'll, I'll be understood. So <laughs> I, I think I'm going to commit to um, doing some Spanish every day so that I can finally get better. Oh, fantastic. Well, James, it's, this is a litmus test. Understand and remember the central message in eight words or less. So here's a test. What was my central message? So I think your central message was use principles of influence to your advantage. Nearly there. Um, use principles of persuasion to your advantage. I certainly understood it. And, and I think it's a good way of distilling such an excellent book into, into a central message.
B plus for me this time. Well, thank you, James. And thank you also to Dr. Robert Cialdini for his incredible book. And of course, all of our listeners, uh, use a hashtag eight words or less to share your thoughts, experiences, any book recommendations. We're on all the social media platforms. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of our other episodes. And you can also download the previous ones that we've done. Bye for now.